But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and, no, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. As we said, this October we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, a movement that was ignited by the thunderous hammer of Martin Luther as he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, 1517. Uh, It was a movement that really changed everything for many who put their faith in Christ. Now what's interesting and a lot of people don't know is Martin Luther didn't intend originally to leave the Catholic Church. That wasn't his agenda. Instead, what he wanted to do is actually invite other theologians to think through some important doctrines like justification by faith alone. He said, this is important. This is critical. We we don't need to get this wrong. We need to think about it well. Well, what we know about Martin Luther is this. He said that the truth of the gospel that he understood in justification by faith alone liberated him from a perpetual sense of of guilt. He felt freed by it. In fact, he says, it swung open the gates of heaven and became the anthem which called all Protestants to unite. See, Trinity Bible Church actually stands along with other evangelical churches as a testimony to the lasting influence of this Holy, uh, Holy Spirit-empowered revival and the ongoing heartbeat of always reforming ourselves by the power of the Spirit and according to the Word of God. Now, in that Spirit, Over October's five Sundays, we will open our Bibles, and we're going to, as we do that, examine each of the five solas of the Reformation. So, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and soli deo gloria. We're going to go through each one, one by one, throughout October. Now, even though we we know these weren't listed together until much later, uh, each of these really did demonstrate themselves clearly in this movement. So we're going to begin this week with what I think might be the most fundamental and foundational of the solas, sola scriptura, or God's Word alone. We're going to be looking at that in in 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17 that Trey just read for us. And as we go through this, we're going to see that the central issue of the Reformation was really one of authority. So who's in charge? Now, Martin Luther was uh, actually engaged in some, uh, some sort of uh, verbal fights with uh, some of these um, Catholic church members and priests. <clears throat> and in one of those discussions, he was trading verbal punches with Catholic theologian Sylvester Pereiris. And he said this, this other guy, he said... He who does not accept the doctrine of the Church of Rome and Pontiff of Rome as infallible rule of faith, from which the Holy Scriptures, too, draw their strength and authority, he is a heretic. In other words, uh, it's not that the Scriptures are authoritative. He says the, the, the Pope is authoritative even over the Bible. And if you don't believe that, then you're a heretic according to our belief system. Well, in opposition, Luther, who was a Catholic as well, said this, Scripture alone, Scripture alone as opposed to Scripture and tradition was inspired by God. 
perfect and flawless as a source of divine revelation and therefore the final and ultimate authority in all matters of faith and practice. See, it's a question of authority. Who's in charge spiritually of your life? Who is it that tells you how you can please God and how you ought to please God? Who is it that you can trust ultimately with your soul before God? Is it God's very words that have been given to you in the Scriptures? Or is it some other teacher or pope or institution? Luther said it's the very Word of God itself. Now, Matthew Barrett, in his book that we're going to give away next week on God's Word alone, defines sola scriptura for us. And here's what he says. I think it's helpful. He says, only Scripture, Scripture alone, because it is God's inspired Word, it is our inerrant, sufficient, and vital authority for our church. Because it is God's inspired, breathed-out Word, it is our inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the church. Now, please don't miss this. Nothing will set the trajectory, define the trajectory of your life of the life of your church, the life of your parachurch ministry, the life of your group of Christians that gather together, your family. Nothing as a Christian is going to set and shape the trajectory of your life more than how you view the Word of God. If you view the Bible as not being God's very Word, your life is going to look very different from the person who believes that it is thus saith the Lord that is speaking from every page of this book that is in the Bible. And so this morning, we're going to be thinking about this, and please don't miss this. There is nothing more important than the way that you view God's Word, and we're going to see this this morning. If you're taking notes, a great thing to write down. This morning, I want you to leave knowing this, that God's Word is enough trust the process. That's what we're going to be talking about. God's Word is enough. Trust the process. We're going to see that in a number of different ways in our text. But first, we see this in verse 14. We see that going beyond the Word of God alone isn't progress. Moving beyond the Word of God alone, it's it's not process. So look with me again at at 2 Timothy 3.14. Notice what he says. He says, But as for you, Paul speaking to Timothy, but as for you, now just stop right there. Because I think those are important words. You might be thinking, okay, what is he talking about? But as for you as opposed to what, right? See, verse 14 here, Paul, as he says, but as for you, what he's saying is, uh, but is contrasting Timothy with a group that he just talked about in verse 13. And he's saying, I don't want you to be like the folks in verse 13. See, Paul has just said that those folks, they will progressively become more evil. Uh, They're going to be the ones who are deceiving and being deceived. In other words, Paul warns Timothy that his contemporaries will move from the truth of the Scriptures to something else. All kinds of other things. Now friends, let let me just draw your attention to this. Now catch this. Moving beyond the Bible, it is not progress, it's regress. I know that some of you have become Christians, you've spent your time in the Word of God, and it could be this morning that you are thinking to yourself, I've read the Bible, and I feel like there needs to be some higher level of spirituality, I need to move beyond the Bible, I need to have some kind of greater experience, just to make sure that I'm, I'm a real Christian, I'm really experiencing all that it means to be a part of the people of God. But if, if you are thinking this morning, and, and this thought has entered your mind, that I have gotten to a place that I need to move beyond the Bible to draw near to God, 
Progress beyond the Bible, it's not progress, it's regress. You have not moved forward, you have moved backwards. See, the only alternative to truth is a lie. I don't think that culturally we're actually very far from the audience that Timothy was speaking to and that Paul was preparing him for. See, Timothy experienced a cultural drift away from God's Word. Have any of you ever experienced something like that in your experience? I think I have, right? So just for funsies, go and like Google some some searches on studies that have been done on the way that culture views the Bible, And you'll find a number of things. Uh, One is, um, I found a number of studies. One, a Pew Research study from 2014, says that 45% of Americans cannot name the four Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, by the way. So I think we're doing better now. That's my part, right? Uh, But but then we also have another study from 2016, a Barda study, that says uh, they studied biblical literacy in the 100 biggest cities in the nation. And did you know that, the, that our, our state, Arizona, actually, or our city, Phoenix, actually ranked number 92, just one ahead of Las Vegas, the city of sin. Uh, we were right next to Hartford, Connecticut, which is not known for being a biblically robust city. Uh, we, we are a, a people who, uh, at large, are, are classified as not knowing or understanding the Bible. In fact, another recent study found that in our nation at large, only 3% of teens Read the Bible every day. Only 3% of of teens read the Bible every day. Uh, Now, let me just say this. Um, If you are a teen or if you are an adult here who says, I would love to start reading the Bible and I I want to read the Bible, and hopefully you'll feel that way more and more as we go through this message, I want you to know that we do have about five copies of the Word of God back at the welcome desk. And if you would like one, uh, it's a leather bound, it's not paper, it's, it's, a, it's a nice little copy, like pick this up, we would love to give this to you, find somebody to help you read it, find someone to sit down and talk with you through the Word of God, we would love to, to give that to you today. Uh, we need to be a people who are about reading the Word of God. But if A.W. Tozer has it right when he says it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian, then biblical illiteracy is a problem for us. We have a major problem. Now, how many of you as we think about this, would say, being honest, that you wish that you had greater confidence in God's Word. Anybody? Like the pastor raises his hand, I can raise my hand, right? All right. Well, catch this. I think all of us should want and hunger to have a greater confidence in the Word of God. And I think that if we were all honest, we would all say that there are deficiencies in our confidence in God's Word. Here's another question. What causes our confidence to drift away from the Word of God? What is it that that makes us not trust God and His Word in the way that we ought to is the people of God. I mean, if it really is God's Word, shouldn't we be hanging on, on every word that comes from this book? And yet, why don't we? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons. I can think of a number. Uh, we, of course, find in the Bible all sorts of reasons that we lose our confidence in the Word of God. Uh, how about sin in our lives? Right? We have sin, things that the Bible says we ought to do, but we don't. Uh, We have things that we shouldn't do that we do. Uh, There are all kinds of ways that we sin against God. And and as we do that, it begins to sear our consciences and it begins to slow our confidence in the Word of God. 
See, if, if we don't check sin, it will erode and weaken our confidence in God's Word. Or, or what about not knowing God's Word? I mean, isn't it kind of hard to put confidence in something that you don't know? Like, right? You get into a situation, and, and all of a sudden you don't know what to do, and you're like, man, I wish I knew my Bible for like this moment. But I don't. And so it's hard to put confidence in something you do not know. Or what about fear of man or fear of woman? Right? Fear of man or fear of woman. You, you really are controlled more by how somebody thinks about you than what the Word of God says about you. You know, maybe uh, this morning it's that uh, your husband has spoken poorly to you and has beaten you down, and your confidence in God's Word has been shaken because you listen more to the Word of your husband who is earthly than you do your heavenly Father who loves you with the love that he has for his son. Fear of man weakens your confidence in the Word of God. Or or what about fourth, a a confidence in the flesh, right? Like, I... I'm doing pretty good at this Christianity thing. Like, I am a good evangelist, and people are coming to Christ, and I don't even need to bother God with prayer anymore because as soon as I show up, people get saved. Like, get the, Baptist water, the baptism waters ready. Like, this is happening, right? And how quickly, in good times, when it seems that God is showing up, do we put our confidence in our flesh rather than God? Or what about fifth, a sense that God's Word hasn't met our expectations in the past? And maybe it's because we expected God's Word to do something that God's Word never promised to do. But when it did not do that thing that we thought that it ought to do, we gave up on it as though it failed. Brothers and sisters, God never fails. But maybe we've had expectations that God has not given us from His Word. Or what about living in a culture, a postmodern culture, that as we look at the Word of God our culture. Uh, We say that really we define truth for ourselves. There's no real objective reality of truth. Like we kind of all have a truth and they're all equal truths. And so even when we come to the Bible, it's like, well, what did you think? Well, I thought this. And what about you? Well, I thought something completely different, but it's still just as awesome. It's like, no, that's not true. Like the word of God, like actually means something, right? But if we don't understand that the Word of God actually means something, then it's going to become more and more diluted in our hearts and minds and lives. Or what about seventh, not covenanting together with the local church? You know, Paul tells Timothy earlier in a letter that the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. Uh, The pillar that that holds things up, the, the buttress that holds things out. It is the place that holds up the truth and holds out lies. And it is a place where the truth is reveled in and displayed and marveled at. It's a place where the world ought to look in to see God at work. And we have forsaken that. We wonder, why is it that we're doubting truth? Was it that truth has left us or that we've left it, right? All kinds of ways constantly that we can start to find our faith and confidence in the Word of God eroded. In fact, I'm guessing that any one of these combinations of factors is at work in all of our lives this morning. It's seeking to draw our attention away from, our confidence in the Word of God away from Him and towards something else, anything else. And when God's Word doesn't satisfy, brothers and sisters, you're in a dangerous place. See, we need to be reminded again and again that the whole Bible is sufficient. The whole Bible is sufficient. Now, that's our second point. You see this in verses 14 to 15. The whole Bible is sufficient. Uh, look there at what Paul says to Timothy in verses 14 to 15. He goes on to say, but as, he says, but as for you, 
Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ, or through faith in Christ Jesus. So as Paul warns of some turning away and trusting, from trusting in the sufficiency of God's word, he then tells Timothy to continue in or to, to hold fast to what he has learned and firmly believed. Now, in the face of rapidly changing cultural uh, experiences where others have turned away from God, Paul tells Timothy he doesn't need new strategies, right? He doesn't say, okay, look, things have changed, and so I've got a new plan for a new day. No, he says, guess what? I, I want to warn you. I want to recommend to you. I want to admonish you. Uh, you don't need a new strategy for this church. He needs the same life-giving word Timothy does that he grew up with from childhood through Eunice and Lois. That's where he got his church growth program, right? From Eunice and Lois. Have you heard about that plan? (laughs) It's great. I know it sounds kind of like Thelma and Louise, but it's different. See, Timothy's Jewish mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, probably started training Timothy in the word when he was about five years old. That's how they did evangelism. They started the children young, hearing the word of God. Now, Eunice and Lois, they were not perfect. I guarantee it. Now, why do I know that? I don't know them, but I know my Bible, and they would tell me they're not perfect, right? But they loved God, and they taught Timothy to love God. So he knew the sacred writings, which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 15, he knew it. And when Paul wrote this, those sacred writings, catch this. Uh, They were the scriptures, and they were at least the Old Testament. I want you to just, like, not jump over that without missing what's happening here. Paul is telling Timothy, you know your Old Testament. It has plenty that is sufficient to lead you to lead others to faith in Jesus Christ. How many of you, like, are like, yeah, I just, like, when I'm going to witness, I take Deuteronomy with me. Like, that's what Jesus did. That's what the Old Testament, that's what the New Testament uh, believers did. They actually would take people to the Old Testament. Now, we know elsewhere that the scriptures include uh, the letters of Paul, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Peter, and others. But when Paul wrote this, he said that the Old Testament was sufficient for Christians to become wise for salvation through faith in Christ. I remember um, just uh, not long ago, uh, I was talking to a woman who was talking about reading the Bible. And she said, there's this thing that I learned that just made everything new when I read the Bible. I had someone teach me that you actually can find Christ all over the Old Testament. And she said, when, when I learned that, it like changed my world. I love to read the Bible. I love to read everything in the scriptures, Old Testament and new, because I knew that I was always going to see Christ everywhere. Brothers and sisters, that has always been the truth. The Bible tells us so. In fact, as Kevin DeYoung writes in his book on the Scriptures, he says, we must not seek to know the Word who is divine, that's Jesus, apart from the divine words of the Bible. And we ought not read the words of the Bible without an eye to the Word incarnate. See that? We're, Old Testament, New Testament, we're reading, we're looking to Jesus, to Christ. And don't miss this, both Old and New Testaments now come together as the united Sufficient Word of God that centers on Christ. See, the Bible itself tells us 
We need both Testaments. But don't miss this. Paul tells Timothy the Scriptures are actually able to make everyone wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That was Paul's experience that we read about in the New Testament. But I don't want to to belittle the helpfulness of evangelistic strategies. But what I do want to do is reinforce the fact that only the Word of God is able to make us wise to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It is only God's Word. So whatever strategy you might use, if it is not centered on the Word of God, it is not God's plan for drawing people to Himself. In fact, he might be, you might be drawing people to something other than Him through a strategy that is not centered on listening to God. If the Bible doesn't come with the authority of God's voice, then the Scriptures are not enough to save the lost. We need to look elsewhere, but they are. And they do. Uh, you know, I still remember... Um, I mean, this is real. Like, this is important. I, I remember when I was here, my first couple of years, we had a couple of uh, uh, ladies who would come, and they, they started coming to the church because they, they really appreciated the teaching and they loved the Bible. And um, both of them, on separate individual occasions, they did not know each other, came up to me and said, You know, I'm going to have to go somewhere else. And I've said, Well, why? And they said, Well, my, my husband's not a Christian. Like, that's another thing. And I want him to come to Christ, and I'm just really worried that if I bring him here, there'll just be too much Bible, and he won't love God. I'm sitting there thinking, are you kidding? Like, that's exactly what the lost need, is the Word of God. They need to hear from God. There's nothing they need more, and there's no other place to hear from God than His Word. Entertaining them will not draw them to Jesus. They need the God of the Bible. And brothers and sisters, let me just encourage you that if you have lost brothers and sisters, uh, lost family uh, in this world, lost friends that you want to lead to Christ, what they need, they, they need more than anything, is to hear from God in His Word. There is no other place to hear from God. But catch the danger here. You've probably heard this before. Um. There are those who think that they need something else in the Word of God to draw their friends near to God. And maybe the reason that they think that is because they had expectations of the Word that failed. Not expectations that God brought, but they had some kind of expectations that when they shared with their lost friends, something would happen that did not happen. And maybe that is because they did not have right expectations of what the Word of God does. Because catch the danger here. It could be that we give up on God's Word and evangelism thinking that it failed in the past. And brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you, God's Word, it never fails. It might not do what you wanted it to do, what we desire it to do, but it never fails. God never fails in His Word. You know, I know the discouragement of spending months of my time with a non-Christian going through the gospel of Mark and having them at the end of the day reject the gospel and say they will not believe. But catch this. You shouldn't in those moments lose heart in the sufficiency of God's Word and its ability. See, God's Word is not tame, right? We know that. It might not do what we want it to do, but it's working. It doesn't always do what we want, but it is doing something. Just remember Isaiah 55, 11. Where God and His Word promises, so shall my Word be that goes from your mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. The Word of God never 
returns void. And he goes on to say, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Do you see it? The sovereign God is actually working through his word in in ways that we might not understand. Uh, John Frame, I believe, explains the way that the word of God is a fearsome thing that we need to respect and revere. He, He says this in his book on the word of God, the doctrine of the word of God. He says this, John Frame says, the power of the word brings wonderful blessings to those who hear in faith with the disposition to obey. It's true. But, but it hardens those who hear it with indifference, resistance, rebellion. For those hearing and studying the word of God regularly, it is so important that they hear in faith, lest the word actually harden their hearts and become a fire of judgment to them. See, God's word never leaves us the same. We hear it for better or for worse. God's powerful word, it never returns void. It never fails. It never drops to the ground empty without any kind of result or response. God is always at work powerfully in his word. His word says so. As Charles Spurgeon once said, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. Let me just encourage you this morning. Don't give up on evangelism. God has sent us to take the word of God to others, trusting that it is the vehicle that he has chosen, the instrument that he has chosen to raise dead things to life. Find someone to read the Bible with. We've got a great book, one-to-one Bible reading in the bookstall. We'd love for you to read to talk about how to go about doing that. Periodically, we have a class where we teach you how to do that. But find someone who is a non-believer and sit down and read the Word of God with them, trusting that that Word can change their heart and their life forever. That's what God's Word says to us. His Word will change everything. Because the Bible still makes people wise unto salvation. But there's a third thing that we see here in verse 16, and that's this. The sufficiency of God's Word is grounded in God. The sufficiency of God's Word is grounded in God. Verse 16 really is breathtaking, isn't it? Did you see that? Uh, turn with me again there in 2 Timothy. And notice what, what he says about the Word of God. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, he says this. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. Did you catch that? Literally, the Scriptures are breathed out by God. It comes from a, a word, theonoustos, a combination of a, a word for God and, and breathed or spirit coming together. And he says that's describing what Scriptures are. They literally come from God. So what does that mean? It simply means that God speaks them. They are His words. This is the same place where we get the idea of inspiration from. God's Word is inspired. See, Paul's telling us that Scripture is the speech of God, His personal utterances from Him to you. God is speaking to you. You're receiving the very words of God in the Scriptures. So breathed out by God means that it is spoken by God and thus inspired by God. Now, some think of the Bible as a book, right? Any of you just like, I mean, really don't like to study don't really like to read. Like some of you are like, I don't, I don't think I'm supposed to raise my... Some of us just don't like 
to study or books. And like library, we, we begin to immediately almost fall asleep when we hear the word book, right? And so it's hard for us when we hear about a Bible, which is a book, to think about the reality that this is a life a life-giving word from God that actually raises up dead things to newness of life. But that's exactly the way that God communicates the word to us. See, God's word, it is actually always found with his spirit. The, the Bible is not less spiritual. In fact, the Bible is most spiritual. Think about it. What is the word of God, the Bible? Isn't it a book that was written by men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit? So there's a real sense in which our Bibles have two authors, the author which is the Holy Spirit and then those men who are carried along by the Holy Spirit to write it. It's a Spirit-inspired book. Not only that, we find that as Jesus is speaking about the Bible, that it's very relational in this sense. Jesus, as he's on the, the road to Emmaus, right, he meets these two guys and he starts showing them from the Scriptures how all of them pointed to himself. And he says, this book is inspired by the Spirit, and it points to me, and if you see me, you have seen the Father. This book is a a mighty powerful book that is all about God. And so when we read the Bible, it is a spiritual book. In fact, catch this. If you are attempting a kind of spirituality that is driven more by like, you know, the, the melody of a song than it is the theology that you're singing about, then you might actually be less spiritual but feel more spiritual. Because God's word is the word that lasts eternally, the word that saves, and the word that brings to life. We love the word of God, the people of God do. But think about it. The scriptures were written by these men, carried along by the Holy Spirit, men the Spirit used to long to see Jesus or who saw Jesus. And the Spirit causes Jesus' sheep to hear Jesus' voice in the word of God. As Calvin says, the Spirit goes before the church to enlighten her in understanding the Word. That's how the Spirit is working in your heart, helping you understand the Bible as you open it up and understand how that needs to change and transform you and make you a new person. God is working through His Word to make you new. Question is, how are we responding to that Word? Are we rejecting it and growing hard? Or are we receiving it and being softened to who God is? See, we take God at His Word which is above every institution. So the scriptures are a permanent source of divine revelation that will enable the church and you and me at any time to discern truth and identify error. We're not left in the dark. We've been given the light of God's word to know what is true and what is real and what is right. That's what God's word is for you and for me. We can trust in the power of the word of God. So true spirituality, it centers on the Bible that culminates in Christ as our ultimate and final authority of faith and practice. That's how we view it here at Trinity. The Bible is our final authority. So if you have something that you don't like, we'll go back to the Bible and we'll talk about it. And if you don't want to have that conversation, then just don't waste your time. Like we're looking at God's word to decide how we're going to live our lives together. It is our authority. It's not me. It's not even just the elders that we have been given a kind of authority here in the Bible. The Bible itself gave us that authority. Ultimately, our authority is God's word itself. And we must submit to God and to Christ and his word. But catch this. God is described in a number of ways. Right? You've seen that throughout the Bible. Uh, He is described as a physician. He is described as uh, the Lord of hosts of a a mighty army of heaven, as the great uh, healer, but also he is the one who is the great judge. And sometimes 
I think that we might tend to treat God a little bit like that, right? We might treat God as, as though uh, he has many different personalities and he wears many different hats. And so sometimes we treat God as though he's wearing one hat at one time. And you know how this works. Uh, if you've got kids, you know what I'm talking about. I have three little boys and they're a little bit wild, right? Wild in the best possible sense. I mean like fun, energetic. Uh, they love to wrestle. We love to wrestle, right? Now, when we wrestle, um, there's this line that sometimes gets a little bit fuzzy because they know that I'm dad and I'm authority in the house, but they also understand that I am opponent, right, and friend, and these different realities. And I know that the confusion has gotten to a dangerous level when I'm on the ground and I see one of my sons start to scale a couch, getting ready to jump from really high up on my face, right? And that's the moment where I put the dad hat on really quick, right? I'm like... Johnny, I'm using my dad voice. This is dad voice. I'm serious. You need to get down before you kill dad, right? Because I want Johnny to understand in that moment that I am speaking with a kind of authority that he might not always recognize that I have when I come to him with my words, right? And don't we sometimes treat God's word like that? Like we read the word of God and we don't treat it as though it has the same kind of authority in different places because maybe we don't like it or we figure out a way to say that it doesn't apply to me. And yet what we know about God is he is sovereign and he is Lord. And every one of God's words that come to us, he never takes off his God hat to speak to us. He never takes off his Lord hat. He is always sovereign over our lives. And when we receive the word of God, it speaks with the sovereignty of the God who made us and who saved us in Christ. So God's word carries that kind of authority in your and my life. God never takes off his Lord half when he speaks. God is always our Lord, and his word always comes with that kind of authority. So what that means for you and me is this. God is so connected to his word that for us to reject his word is for us to reject God. In other words, you can't ever disobey God and say it's nothing personal. Because there's always a personal God that is speaking directly to you in his word. God has personally reached out to us, speaking to us powerfully as, as your ever-present Lord. But don't miss this. Sometimes when we look at this and we look at the Bibles, we misunderstand sola scriptura. This even happened in the Reformation. And we, under, we misunderstand it for this other idea called nuda scriptura. Nuda, N-U-D-U, scriptura. And, and what that is, is this idea that because the scriptures are your only authority, that you don't have any other authority in your life. Uh, there is no pastoral authority. We don't look to church history and tradition and, and the godly men and women of the past who we can learn from. Like, we don't need to look anywhere else. Like, we, we just kind of discern truth for ourselves as we see scripture. Now, I hope that you see that that's dangerous uh, but it's also unbiblical. Did you know that? Like, here's the irony of that. The Bible itself says that you need to have authorities in your life and that God has given you those authorities. They need to be submissive to the Word of God, but it doesn't mean that you don't need any other authority. That means that we need to learn, we, we need to have elders in the church. Authority's good. They need to submit to the Word of God. We also can learn from church history and tradition. doesn't mean that it's ultimately authoritative over us. We just need to look at it in light of what the Word of God says. And if the Word of God affirms it, then we can learn from it and be encouraged by it. 
So when we think about sola scriptura, it doesn't mean that there are no authorities over us, but instead that we have a right understanding, a healthy understanding of authority, that ultimately God is sovereign, that He is Lord, and we are merely under-shepherds of the great shepherd who is over us. As Matthew Barrett says in his book, while church tradition and pastors play a ministerial role, I like this, he says, Scripture alone plays a magisterial role. While, while church tradition and pastors play a ministerial role, Scripture alone plays a magisterial role. In other words, every other authority must align to and submit to Scripture as our supreme and final authority in faith and practice, both as individual Christians and as a local church. But there's a fourth thing that we see here. And we see a beautiful process with a, a great purpose. We see a process with a purpose in, in verses 16 and, and 17. And you'll notice this process and purpose. We see that God's word here forth is sufficient to sanctify us. It's sufficient to sanctify us through this beautiful process of God at work in our life that actually brings about a great intended purpose. So look at verses 16 and 17, what he says. Verse 16, this is what what Paul says. He says, All uh, Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. What's it profitable for? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for the training in righteousness that the man of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. That's what God is doing through His Word in us and for us. It's a process, a process that, he tells, that Paul tells Timothy about. See, he says that the Scriptures are actually profitable for those four things, for the teaching and for the rebuke and for the correction and for the training in righteousness. And verse 17 says that the purpose of that, what it produces, is this end product that the man of God might be competent for every good work. So, so those four things work out to that last thing. Now, it's actually that word every and every good work that points to the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scriptures, which is part of, of sola scriptura, understanding that the Scriptures are sufficient for every good work that we need to do. So I want to just talk about this process really quickly and then the product that comes from that. First, the process. Uh, notice that he says the Scriptures are good for teaching. Now, teaching, of course, is uh, the Scriptures which provide Christians with an inspired, infallible, inerrant word from God for what we believe and how we live. We look to the Scriptures for all of that. Now, the word for teaching is, is doctrine. So we have doctrine that, that teaches us that we need to learn so that we can know how to honor God and live a life that is pleasing to Him. And we all have doctrine whether we know it or not. Now, you, you might not know that you have doctrine, but I guarantee you that all of us have certain views about God and about how we ought to live in light of what we think about God. We all have doctrine, teaching that we are following, and they are either informed by the Word of God or they are uninformed by the Word of God. They're either informed by God's Word or they're informed by something else. Maybe our opinions, our experiences, our friends' views of God, but not the Word of God itself. See, those beliefs are either sound or unsound. In the Bible, it never contradicts itself. So what we believe determines the choices we make and where our lives will lead us. Because eternity is on the line, we need to make sure that we have sound doctrine, right? So good doctrine is important. 
That's one. We need good teaching. Second, though, notice he says reproof. The Word of God is good for reproof. Now, reproof's interesting. This is the one that we all love, right? Reproof is uh, this idea of pointing out errors in the faith or life of someone else to stop them dead in their tracks. The, The church needs to do this with false teachers, but individual Christians also need to be reproved and to reprove one another. That's what the Bible tells, tells us. You can see that in Matthew 18 and, and elsewhere. In fact, Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. So Christians want to follow Jesus' voice, right? So how bad do we want to follow Jesus' voice? Do we want to follow it to the extent that if I am not following his voice, I want somebody to tell me so I can change directions? Like I do. I don't like it, but I know that I need it, Right? And if you're anything like me, you don't like to have your ears pointed out. I sure don't. But those who follow Jesus' voice start off by following Jesus with the confession that we are errant, but the Scriptures are not, right? We're saying the Bible is true about what it says about me, and I know that I am not living in the way that I ought to and things need to change. I'm what needs to change, not God's Word. That's where salvation begins. I love what God has said to me. I want that Word rather than my own faulty words. So if we believe God, we should trust that when reproof is done well, with a love for the Christian and a desire for the glory of God, it leads to something more valuable than much gold and something that's much sweeter than honey. The very word of God himself, Jesus, leads to eternal life. So we can anticipate that each of us will need reproof. And where reproof is too frequent or trite, it is abuse, right? Like, if, if, if it's just always reproof, like, nobody wants that. It's abusive. But where reproof is lacking, it's spiritual neglect. And that's abuse, too. And I think that's where many people are. They don't have anyone who speaks into their lives about where they stand spiritually. In fact, we have so many Christians that come and join our church. And one of the things they say is, I want somebody who's willing to speak into my life. I want meaningful relationship with someone who will help me follow Christ. I think that's a a mark of the Holy Spirit. The world, this world does not want to be corrected and reproved. That is something the Spirit says that you need to be changed and transformed into the image of Christ. See, it's not loving, brothers and sisters, to leave or let someone believe harmful things or live in harmful patterns. That's not love. That's not good parenting. It's not good parenting. It's it's not good uh, spiritual relationship. It's not humility not to reprove. See, if, you're, if you've done well, if you've done it well, you know that it takes more humility actually to reprove someone in a godly way than ignore the problem. Anybody know that? Like how much humility it takes to actually reprove someone? It's hard to do it well, isn't it? And yet, that is exactly what God calls us to. But we don't stop at reproof, right? We don't stop there. We move into correction. That's what God uses the Word of God to do. Catch this. It is not enough just to point out someone's failures. Did y'all know that? Like, that is not enough. That's not like super spiritual. It is not a spiritual gift to walk around pointing out what failures everybody is. Like, that is not God at work in a special way. What is spiritual is this idea of correction where you are pointing someone not only to the fact that they are off track, but how to get back on track so that they might honor God in a more godly way. That's what correction is. You know, just think about this. If you've had kids, you know this is right. If you have a a kid, you you know that good parenting isn't like going to your kid and saying, hey, you know what? 
Um, Benjamin, Benjamin, you are an absolute loser and failure. I'm glad we've had this conversation, right? Like, what kind of dad does that? That's a horrible dad. If that's you, you're a bad dad. No, when you come to someone and you rebuke them and you say like, hey, Benjamin, um, you really should obey your mom whenever she says to get dressed for church without taking way too long, right? You're being disobedient. And, And so let me tell you a better way to do it. Why don't you wake up a little bit earlier? Why don't you get your clothes on? And then whenever mom like comes to you and you're already dressed and she didn't have to tell you, think about the way that you'll bring joy to her and you'll honor her. Like that's a better way to live, isn't it? He's like, yeah. And so, and so that's the way that, that God works with us, isn't it? Like the process isn't like one and done, like you're an idiot and I'm done with you. It's, hey, look, you know what? You messed up. Like this is what the word of God says. This is how you lived. Uh, let me show you what the word of God says about the hope. Did you know that you are in Christ and that you really can change? Did you know that your identity is more defined by Jesus than it is by your failures, even this failure that you just made, your past failures, uh, future failures that you make? It is actually, uh, your identity is wrapped up in who Jesus is and all that he has accomplished for you, and that you actually have the favor of God on you. Don't you want to please God? Let me tell you how you do it. This is what the Word of God says. It looks like to obey God in this area, and you start to show them ways practically that they can actually obey God. That's correction. Like, don't leave them at reproof. Bring them to correction. Like, where do we go? Where's the hope from here? That's what the gospel calls us to do. See, correction is helping a Christian hit the brakes, throw their life in reverse, and get back on the right path to follow Jesus' voice. Both individual Christians and churches are always in this process of being changed and transformed into the image of Christ. And God is sanctifying us by His Word, making us look more and more like His Son. Well, that's step three, but then there's step four, which is training in righteousness, which moves into more of that practical living out. See, training carries the idea of a system system of discipline that's used by a parent to develop Christian character in a child. And here the scriptures are sufficient to progressively sanctify us so that we are able to live holy lives. Now catch this. As a Christian... God imputes Christ's righteousness. He charges it to us in what Luther calls a sweet exchange. Christ takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness so that if we are in Christ, we stand positionally righteous before God as obedient sons and daughters of the living God. Yet, we are also progressively becoming more and more righteous as we train to display the grace of God that's been lavished upon us. So we positionally are in Christ, but also progressively God is at work in you to make you more and more into the image of His Son. So catch this. Sometimes training takes repetition as God seeks to rescue us from sin. Do you catch that? Sometimes that training, that process, isn't like a one loop and done, right? Any of you had trouble with the sin that like, God continues to work with you through. And so, yeah, okay, maybe three, right? And me. And so, like, this is the way it works for the rest of you guys. (laughs) So, basically, you have a sin that you're struggling with, and you're going and you're learning the Word of God, right? And the Word of God, and maybe even a a brother or sister who loves you, comes to you and says, I'm looking at the Word of God, and I'm looking at you, and, and it doesn't match up. 
There's, there's a disparity here. I think change needs to happen. I'm seeing a trajectory. It seems harmful for others. It's not just a small thing we can ignore. You know, we can't just forbear this. We need to deal with it. And so as I'm looking at this, we really need to work on this, I think. And here's, here's what I think the Word of God actually says you ought to be doing. You correct them, right? Here's, here's the way forward. And then training in righteousness. Here's some ways I think we can go about that. How, some practical lifestyles and making this better. How many of you have been through that loop and you're like, yes, I've got this kick and then next week happens, right? Some of you are like, well, then like the next minute happens. And then how many of you, when you hit that moment, you think just so despairingly like, I'm a failure. Like God is absolutely done with me. Like sin has won again. I know that God tells me that I'm more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus, but right now I feel like the least of failures, right? Well, be encouraged by what Paul says to Timothy. He says it's a process, And it's not one and done. I am working in your life over and over again. The word is washing you, is sanctifying you, is cleaning you. And and the first time, there's a little bit of change incremental, and then more and more. And guess what? It's going to get better. God's going to continue to work. You'll have some some times where maybe it looks like you've lost the battle, and then God continues to pull pull you up and and draw you to himself. And it's going to get better and better, maybe worse at times, but ultimately better. And and you don't want to look at like any point, right, on your spiritual timeline and say, well, like, oh man, stock's up today. It was down yesterday, right? So I think I'm losing. And then it was good day and then bad yesterday. No, you look at the trajectory, and as you look at a trajectory over years, you take the long view, and you start to see over the long view, look at what God's doing. I mean, it's, it's a slight incline, but there's an incline there. God's at work. He is doing something. I am a different person today than I was five years ago. Now, I, I might not be a different person than I was five minutes ago, which is what I wanted. But God's taken the long view. He's at work in my life, and I am different day by day. And here's what Paul says in Corinthians. He says that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next into the image of his son, into that same image. Here's the problem. I think most of us are missing out on the one degrees because we're so disappointed by the 10-degree jumps that we're not getting. Trust God for the one degree. Take the one degree. Say, I'll I'll take one degree. I'll take half a degree. I just want to make sure the trajectory's going up, right? Like, I I want to see God work in me, changing me, transforming me. That's exactly what this process is. Because here's the promise. It's the product. It is that he says that in verse 17, God's word is sufficient to equip us for every good work. Sinners like you and me. He says the word of God is sufficient to train us and to equip us for every good good work. I mean, hear this good news. Do you hear it? Uh, Did you know that in Christ that you can please God? Like, maybe you're so discouraged right now because you feel like you have failed your own expectations, even though God's at work in your life, and God says, catch this, you can please me. That's what God's Word says. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking Isaiah 64, 6, right? Which is a great verse. It says, outside of Christ, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags, But catch this, that is outside of Christ and the new covenant that he ushered in in his blood. We are in a new day. If you are in Christ, that means that God doesn't look on you as filthy rags. He looks on you as something different and new and unique. See, God, in the good news of the gospel is this, that in Christ, we can actually do works in the eyes of God, not to earn salvation, but as a demonstration of God's work through us by the power of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us in this new covenant. God is on display in you and in me. And the Word of God, catch this, it is sufficient. It is able, fully able to equip us for every good work 
that we could do to please God. God hasn't hidden his plan for pleasing him from us or withheld the power that you need to accomplish it. He has given you his word and he has given you his spirit. That's what he has given his people. And so as John Frame says, the Bible really does contain all of the divine words that we need for any aspect of human life. If you want to know what it looks like to be a successful human, it is in the Bible. That is the place that you will find it. And here's what I want to leave you with. It's this, equipping takes time. Trust the process. God uses to change you and others. Trust the process. I know that you want to like be Cinderella for the ball, but God works through a slow process of changing you more and more day by day into his image. And I want you to, as you see this, trust the process, I want you to think of uh, really just four quick things as we close. Trust the process. Trust that the word of God is sufficient, that it really does work in God's way. Trust that it works in God's way to lead all people to salvation. So you've got to trust the process. Romans 1.16, it says, uh, there Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the way of salvation is God's word, the gospel through his word. Now, I know that some of the Bible is hard. In fact, Peter says that of Paul. He says, I've been reading Paul and Paul's pretty hard. If it's hard for an apostle, it's hard. But God's word is able to save children and adults just alike both the simple and the wise. Now, it doesn't mean that every person can understand everything that is in the Bible without the help of teachers, which are a gift from the Holy Spirit. But the Bible can lead everyone to faith in Christ. It can make wild sinners complete. Now, here's the interesting thing. Have you ever noticed this? Let me ask you honestly. Have you ever heard people say these two statements? Have you ever heard people say uh, that they tend to think of the Bible as being too simple for the wise, right? Like, I don't know, man, like, this guy's got a PhD. I've got the Bible. I don't know if I really am, like, the guy to share Christ with him. And then on the other side, have you ever heard people also say that the Bible is too wise and hard for the simple? Like, I don't know, man. Like, I don't read much. I don't know if they can really access those big words in the Bible. It's like, how can it be both? right? Well, it's because I think the Word of God is actually exactly what we need, and Satan wants to fight it with every inch of his being to keep us from actually trusting that it is able to do what God says it's able to do. And that's why it's chaos when we come to it. Oh, it can't save the smart, and it can't save the simple. I don't know quite what we're supposed to do with it, right? (laughs) But the Word of God is able to save us to the uttermost.